I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, Amber Case, author of Calm Technology, sits down with Stephen Galanis, founder of Cameo, to discuss how Chicago became the early home base for one of the country's flashiest startups. He shares how he conceptualized the idea of a platform that allows you to hire a celebrity to surprise your friends, and how the startup accelerated from novelty to a full-fledged advertising platform and more. Hi, everyone. Uh, It's really great to be here today. Stephen, awesome to be able to interview you. I have so many questions for you. Uh, Well, let's kick things off. One of the first questions that I have for you, Stephen, is how did you switch to a celebrity platform? You were an options trader before. How did that, how did you figure that out? That's a great question. So uh, first off, Amber, thank you uh, for doing this today. I'm really excited. I enjoyed our first conversation and hopefully this one will be even better uh, now that we have some context. Uh, you know, like any boy growing up in Chicago, I think when you look around at the King industry, that all, almost always was options trading. Uh, when I looked, I grew up in Glenview, Illinois, and uh, most of the most successful uh, people who I knew uh, growing up, you know, they're they were options traders. So that was just kind of the thing I always dreamed. It was either playing for the Chicago Blackhawks or, or going down into the pit. Uh, that seemed like a lot of fun. Um, I did that uh, right after graduating from college. I graduated from 2010. And at that point, you know, it was right after the 08 recession. It was a really, really tough job market. I was extremely fortunate to get a clerkship on the floor. And at that time, I remember walking into the Chicago Board of Trade for the first time and just seeing these craters in the ground where you know hundreds and thousands of uh, futures market makers used to be and suddenly these pits were just empty and the monitors that used to be there were gone it, it kind of felt like a dinosaur graveyard in a few ways and i was i had the crazy idea as a 21 year old that maybe i could be the last great options market maker uh, in chicago and you know looking back on the on the onto that time i remember all the older guys that were in the pit were like you missed 08 you missed Oh, one. You missed the flash crash. You missed the dot com bubble. In finance, everything was always about how great things were in the past. And one of the things I really loved by being at LinkedIn was I started learning about tech. And, you know, when it was crazy when I got to LinkedIn to think like I'm going to be the last you know, tech entrepreneur or like this is the best it was going to be. Everything was very futured future focused and a big shift from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. Um, but but while I was doing that, I, there were some themes that happened. I started uh, film producing um, from, you know, from the pet. My uncle is a big movie producer. Uh, his most recent movie is The Irishman, but he had famously done Rambo, Conan. And in 2012, a movie called Lone Survivor that he produced came out. And I ended up running a movie theater out and taking a lot of guys from the pit uh, into you know, into this theater and uh, everybody was going to meet Steven, why are you here in Chicago trading with us? And why aren't you in LA being a film producer? Uh, The truth was my uncle said that was a dirty business. There was no reason to get into it. But I also realized that people in Chicago really had a deep desire for, to connect with, you know, talent, to be part of the entertainment world. They just didn't have access. So that was a theme I thought about. And, you know, I kind of tabled it for a few years uh, while working at LinkedIn. Uh, is when I had the idea for this. Um, I'm a Duke grad, as I mentioned, and I had a lot of buddies who were pro athletes or rappers or, or came out and, and saw stardom. And in the age of social media, I realized that 
people were, were becoming more famous than they were rich. So I had friends that might have been Duke basketball players that had hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on Instagram. But when they got to the NBA and they were practice players on the Chicago Bulls, they couldn't find any type of off the field income. Their contracts weren't guaranteed for the most part. And they might be one torn ACL or sprained ankle away from you know, being a pair pro at their at their high school and, you know, coaching JV basketball. So I always felt like this gap between fame and modernization was really worthy. And and I think as I'm looking back on it, I always loved sports. I always loved entertainment. I always loved market and marketplaces and bringing people together. And uh, I, I think like looking back on it, 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 it's never obvious, you know, as you're doing it, but looking back on it, you know, this was the perfect job for me. That's awesome. I think I, I think another thing that I heard you say is that you had an epiphany that the selfie was the new autograph. Did you take a lot of selfies yourself or did you like, you know, where, you know, how did you really go from that initial kind of ideation to this opportunity, like that gap, you know, that nobody had. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that back, uh, back to my pitch days. I remember I was trading at the CBOE and one of my buddies was an emerging player in the NBA named Kyrie Irving at the time. It was his rookie season. And, you know, he was, you know, he's now a, you know, Olympian and, and NBA champion and multiple time all-star, you know, with his own shoe. But at the time he was just like the first pick in the draft. And, you know, he's a 19 year old kid just trying to see cool things. And I remember bringing him to the pit and like everybody got in line to take a picture with him. And I was thinking about how, you know, maybe 10 years ago or like pre-selfie, you know, pre-cell phone camera, you know, traders would have probably taken the trading card out and gotten them to sign something or sign their shirt or sign their hat. So I, I remember like at that time really thinking that the selfie was the new autograph. And uh, time and time again, like I, I kept seeing evidence of that. And that was one of the core ideas upon which Cameo was was born. That's brilliant. That's awesome. Uh, so then, you know, the, the next question, which which should be fairly obvious, there are so many companies coming out of Silicon Valley um, why did you start in Chicago? How did that incubation process and how did you how did you learn from that? Um, and and what can the city be doing to kind of support super important business adventures like this? I call it adventures, not ventures, because it seems more like an adventure. Yeah, well, it's better than I can't tell you how many of my friends, my mom's friends would say, hey, how's your little project coming around? But um, look. Chicago's home for me. Uh, I love Chicago. My Twitter handle is Mr. 312. Uh, you know, since at Duke, everyone just called me the mayor of Chicago. That was always like my my nickname uh, growing up. Um, and and some a place that I'd been hearing a lot about as I was at LinkedIn was something called 1871. And it's the city's flagship tech incubator. And my two co-founders were actually in LA. Um, one was in Venice Beach, one was in uh, Bel Air. And I remember like, thinking about this thing that was 1871. And when I had the idea for Cameo and I just left LinkedIn, I ended up applying 1871. I got in, um, it seemed like a magical place, right? The city, the state, the universities, the big companies were all pu pulling the resources together to try to say like, if we wanted to build the best incubator in the world in Chicago, what would it look like? And, and I think they did. And look, 1871 sometimes gets a lot of flack for, it's been around for 10 years. Where's the, where's the big exit? But people forget that like, maybe one out of a thousand startups is gonna make it. And if one Cameo or one Spot Hero or one M1 Finance or some of these, you know, the, the investment that the city made in this place is starting to pay off. And, you know, one of the benefits is that 
uh, every single dollar in the in the company before the Series A at Cameo, the friends and family round, the angel round, the seed round, that was all Chicago money. So if Cameo wins, Chicago as an ecosystem is going to win really big. But it really started with 1871. Uh, after 1871, uh, the the next most important thing was a guy named Mike Gamson. Uh, Mike Gamson is the incredible founder of, or incredible CEO of Relativity, uh, now in Chicago. Uh, back then he was the uh, global head of sales at LinkedIn. And he had heard that I was leaving to start this thing. He called me up three months uh, into doing this. It was a cold call and he wrote a $500,000 uh, angel investment on the spot. Cause he's like, this idea is great. And I want this to be in Chicago. And frankly, if it wasn't for people like Mike, I don't know that Cameo would have been funded in Chicago. In fact, I applied to Techstars Chicago and got rejected in 2017 because the, the Techstars leadership said, if you will never be able to raise money in Chicago, you're going to have to go to LA, you're going to have to go to San Francisco, you're going to have to go to New York. It's like kind of a waste of your time to be there. But I'm stubborn and I love Chicago. So I said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay in my hometown. I'm going to try to build something great. And, uh, and then, you know, of course, as the venture capital started flowing in from the coast, you know, the, the business got built around for me. And, and today, Cameo is a fully distributed company. We don't have offices anymore, but the majority of my employees are in Chicago. Yeah, totally. It's funny. I have I have similar experience with that where I'm very stubborn, too. And I was in Portland, Oregon, and everybody said, you can't raise money in Portland. It's too small. You have to go to Silicon Valley. And I said, well, I'm just going to raise here and then show people that you can and try to bring a lot from the suburbs into the city. And after we raised some money here for my early startup, uh, over $10 million of VC were poured from the suburbs into the city. And I think the other thing about these incubators, like I visited a bunch of them in the city will say, oh no, you know, you guys didn't accomplish X or Y. But for every single reject, there's now employees that are working at bigger companies, bigger startups happen. And again, with VC, if one in a thousand works, it, it, it can redefine a city, it can put a city on a map. And it's so important to allow for that type of high risk failure that that like, that's more important than business school for a lot of people. So totally. And, and Amber, I'm happy you said that. It, 1871 to me felt like business school. It felt like I remember, you know, every single day there's this big mentor board, and you know, there were people that could teach you sales and marketing, and a lot of top luminaries from the Chicago business community donate their time there. And at the same time, they had classes and programming. And I would fill my calendar up, right? I'd go to every class, I'd meet every mentor, I'd hone my pitch, I'd talk to other entrepreneurs, just get that energy that you get from being one guy at a desk and, and seeing other people at a desk too, kind of feeling that there was community. And and that was huge during a really critical time uh, for me. And, and, you know, even thinking about getting up in the morning and like going somewhere, right? Because when you're not working at a company or you leave a LinkedIn, suddenly it feels like you're unemployed. But, you know, I, I treated Cameo like it was a billion dollar business when it was just me sitting at a desk at 1871. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love your story about somebody just totally knowing you, believing in you, and then giving you that check to kickstart everything. Um, how was it to find follow-on financing? Did you raise that outside or how, how did that work? What were the challenges there? Well, Mike Gamson, you know, he, he never wants any publicity, but he's become like the Johnny Appleseed of the, you know, Chicago tech ecosystem. He, he definitely has the Midas touch. Um, and he's just an incredible guy, uh, you know, hit it big at LinkedIn and, and you know, his whole passion in life now is to foster the Chicago tech ecosystem. And, you know, so many of the best companies in Chicago now have been backed by Gamson, you know, at the earliest stage. 
And it's really people like him saying yes that have given rise to so many jobs. And he's I can't speak enough about how um, you know how impactful that's been. But once Mike was in, right, he's a known quantity. So suddenly, you know, I had all these people beating down the door. And actually, a funny story: Mike had committed to do a 500k round, and then it's like, hey, here's this a global network effect business. I think we're going to need a lot of people with networks. Here's like 10 of my friends. You should go talk to them. I'm going to tell them all I'm doing it. There's no room for them, but. And then of course I met them all and then every single one of them was like, I need to get into this thing. And then by the end, Mike's like, if you don't mind, I'll cut myself back to 250K. We can, every one of these 10 people is willing to put 25K in and, and that was it. And it was a great decision. And it's a lot, it's always easy to raise money when you don't need it. Totally, totally. I, I had the same thing happen to me. We had two groups of 10 investors who were competing against us and then we had kind of a mentor that was a local person that said here's how to run your competitive term sheet because you know if you're outside of silicon valley you might not get the competitive terms that you want you might be really left behind on the cap table and so having somebody just take us through and be real strategic like i was like oh my gosh we can do this on the sales side too like this is so cool you know um so yeah and these people have really changed the whole the whole scene. So yeah, and one other one other fun story, right? You talk about follow-on financing. Right after I got that 500k, and again, this is like a really bold move for a, a brand new startup. I think I started paying 1,500 a month or something like that. That was cr a crazy amount of money for Cameo at the time to go and get an office at 1871. So suddenly we weren't just like a person at a desk, but now we were on the 13th floor of the Merchandise Mart and we're actually on the floor where all the VC firms were. I didn't plan this out, but what ended up happening was the second day we moved into this office, there was this you know, uh, little Asian kid that got stuck uh, in the building. He couldn't figure out how to leave the Merchandise Mart. He ended up knocking on the door to see what was going on. It turned out it was Jackson Jin from Chicago Ventures. You know, he came in, I think my mom had brought Portillo's and, and different like food to come eat. And, you know, everybody else was gone. It's like nine o'clock at night. And he was day two um, out of undergrad, you know, coming in, working at a venture firm. And he left that night just like falling in love with Cameo. He came back the next morning and went to his GPs and was like, the next Snapchat is like 35 feet away from us. Like we need to get into this. And and of course, like Ezra and, and Kevin Willer, and I love all the Chicago venture guys, but all the guys were like, Jackson, you're crazy. You're just falling in love with the first entrepreneur you've ever met. It was literally day two of him in venture, probably the first person that had ever pitched him. And and then sure enough, like Ezra uh, and the Chicago Venture team ended up coming over and uh, and talking to me. They came in with a hundred thousand dollar check. So that was their first institutional capital. But again, like because of 1871 and because of Mike Gamson's check, that enabled me to be like right in the middle of of you know money and mentorship and you know camaraderie and all those type of things. So you'll never find a bigger fan of 1871 than me. Yeah, that's awesome. And these are these are the little stories that like help that often aren't told, right? I think a lot of people like read the paper and they're like, they raised the money. It's like, but they didn't get the behind the scenes of like how serendipitous it is to be in the right place at the right time with the accent or whatever. And then just the the character, right? Just like having a like a passion and just being there for somebody. That's super cool. That's super yeah, cool. Yeah, Lightspeed and Kleiner Perkins didn't just find us out of nowhere, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think that, you know, and especially if they're, they're you know, they don't have all the lore because they went to Stanford about like, here's how you do it and here's my friend. Um, okay, so the, the next set of questions is really about how 
how you became successful out that early crucial traction like what were the early wins where you started to make some money or you started to say okay we have a repeatable business model that can scale i'll start with the early losses because that's probably a better story um so as you can imagine cameo is a marketplace just like grubhub just like uber where there is supply and demand and in our marketplace the supply are the celebrities and the demand is the talent so you can imagine how hard it is to start this business out when you're talking to fans about hey we have a marketplace where you could connect with your favorite people but we literally don't have any of their favorite people or b here's a marketplace where you as a talent can connect with your fans and we had no fans right so we had the consummate chicken and the egg question we had pretty high conviction that in our marketplace, focusing on the supply side first would actually be the way to crack the chicken and the egg question because our supply, unlike a restaurant or unlike a, a driver in Uber, our supply can are famous. They have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on Twitter, Instagram, and they can they can market themselves, right? They can send a tweet out and turn their followers into our customers for free. So I remember we it was March 15th of 2017. I've already left LinkedIn. I was three months into you know taking the deep plunge, and we only had one talent on Cameo. His name was Cassius Marsh. He was our first investor. He was actually my co-founder Martin's uh, only NFL client. He was an NFL agent at the time, and we had Cassius create a link. It's Cameo.com/slash/cash, and there was a video that we had him that was a like kind of a demo Cameo video. And he sent a tweet out. He said, "Hey, for 20 bucks, I'm happy to make a video like this for anyone that wants one." And we felt like you know the site was just going to blow up. He had 76,000 Twitter followers, so obviously, like this was going to be like hit the button and it was going to go nuts. And I remember I was in Scottsdale, Arizona, trying to get another Chicago guy on, Jason Kipnis, who at the time was uh, playing on the Cleveland Indians. I was in Scottsdale at spring training trying to get them. Martin, Cassius Marsh, and Devin, so my co-founders, were in Venice Beach, and we had the Google Analytics set up on my phone. And I remember there's a dot in Venice a dot in uh, in Scottsdale, Cassius sent the tweet out, we're expecting a flood of people to come and literally nobody showed up, it was just crickets. And at the same time, as the tweet was coming out, people started like talking shit to Cash. You make millions of dollars for $20, I can't believe you would do this, how much is this company paying you? He was our first investor, he just gave us 25 grand. So now he's upset that people are talking shit to him, nobody's booking. I remember thinking maybe Google's broken. I signed off uh, the website, the dotted Scottsdale went away. I came back on cameo.com and then the dot popped back. So it's like, no, Google's not broken. Nobody wants this. This is an absolute disaster. So in the meantime, Cassius freaks out. He walks out. Our co-founder Martin is like, you know, scared that he's just lost his only NFL player. who's just given us 25 grand. So he's pissed at me and Devin. He runs out after him to try to save like his other business in case that didn't work. And Devin and I were on the phone and all of a sudden a dot pops up in like Renton, Washington, which is right where the Seattle Seahawks uh, facility is. And, and Cash has played for the Seahawks at the time. So we see this dot pop up and we're, I remember like sitting on the edge of my seat, you know, at the steakhouse, I was in the middle of dinner with like the second talent. And I'm, and I'm also trying to not say like, all this crazy stuff's happening or it's not working. So I remember watching this kind of like in the corner of my dinner and, and this dot is just like going. And and today you go to Cameo and there are tens of thousands of people to watch. There are all these videos. You could get lost down the rabbit hole of Cameo. But at the time there was, a, it's like a Google form. It was like, who do you want? Or like, like who's it for? And what does it say? And like, here's the price. And that was it. And for 
for four minutes, but that felt like four hours. This person was just on the website. And then eventually, and we're just like, are they going to buy? Are they going to buy? And then eventually it just comes off and the dot came. And I remember my heart just dropped and I'm like, well, fuck, you know, I, I shouldn't have left LinkedIn yet. Uh, maybe I should have waited to sell one. And I was just so devastated because um, I just felt like nobody wanted our thing. And then uh, all of a sudden my phone starts vibrating and I get a D Instagram or I get a Twitter DM from this person. He goes, hey, my daughter's favorite person in the world is Cassius Marsh. It's her birthday on Thursday. I'm trying to buy, but your payment processor is not working. So at that time, I'm like, okay, tell me what to say. What's her name? We're going to get the video done. And of course, like Cash was mad at us. So he missed the, it was a Tuesday night. He missed the Thursday birthday. We got the video back like a week later. It was probably the shittiest cameo I've ever seen in my life. He was so enthusiastic. Hey, Reese, happy 20, you know, happy 16th birthday. Thanks for being a fan. It was so bad. I was like embarrassed to send it. But, you know, I'm like, I got this thing. I'm going to send it to the guy. And I'm just like, hey, sorry, no charge. We just want to take, you know, make sure your girl is happy. We send the video off. About 10 minutes later, I get a, uh, another DM and the dad filmed his daughter watching the video and she was so happy she started crying. So despite the fact that our launch was like the most object utter failure you could imagine, the fact that I saw that somebody was willing to like go to a website, like it not work, like track me down on Twitter, like send the thing. And then I saw the visceral reaction of the fan. Like the second we did the first one, I knew that, you know, we could do millions of these or billions of these magical moments at scale. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I, I want a book of every like terrified moment that everybody goes through when they have something that's like super revolutionary and they, and they know it is, but then like the whole world is telling them no. <laughs> and then for them to just be like, and then it flips, you know, um, that is awesome. Okay, so after that point, how did you get the next talent on the platform? Well, then I, once I had that reaction video, the chicken and the egg question was solved because now it wasn't, like at this point, nobody's making any money on Cameo, right? We're selling $20. I think we were selling $1, $2, $3 Cameos. But once I had, it wasn't then about like, hey, do you want to do this to make money? I had this reaction video and it's like, don't you want to make your fans feel like this? And once I had that, that was huge. And then, you know, people were seeing that and they started saying yes. And then they would they would make their own versions of that video and they'd get their own reactions back. And then they would tell their teammates in the locker room. And we started just with pro sports. And frankly, we didn't really find product market fit there early. Um, you know, we were going after the third string backup quarterback. So, you know, who's Mitch Trubisky's backup backup today? Like, you know, nobody in this crowd even knows. Like, those are the people we started with on Cameo. Anyone would, that would say yes. And uh, And eventually, as we started building the thing up, you know, we, we, we always, we thought about like the whole world of talent on like a consultants two by two with the X axis being willingness to do cameos from like zero to me. I'm probably the most willing in, in the world. And then from fame, from like me to Justin Bieber. And we wanted to focus on people on the, in the top right, of course, very famous people that are very willing to do it. We didn't want to focus on the bottom left, people that weren't that famous and weren't willing. Like we didn't want the backup, uh, you know, left guard of the, Cincinnati Bengals who isn't going to answer his phone like that wasn't what we wanted but we actually made a very contrarian bet to focus on people who are less famous but more willing because we wanted to build liquidity in the market and we believe that if we sold you know a five dollar cameo from the third backup quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens 
people would would be able to try the product and then one day when we got Ray Lewis on there you know people who were willing to pay 5 bucks today might pay 500 in the future for someone they really liked and that was that was really important for us yeah that's super brilliant too because it's more approachable right people are not going to be like all into paying 500 for Taylor Swift but if they've got 5 bucks they could try it out it's not like they're bothering their favorite celebrity friend or you know, yeah, actually, right. If it if it works, if they understand the joy and the delight, and that's where the network effect popped in. Because what we saw really early was that, and again, we didn't know this. We thought Cameo was the new autograph, but it, I actually like the more I've learned about the business, I think Cameo is actually a, a new form of communication. It's the spiritual predecessor to Cameo is probably the handwritten note or the singing telegram. So it's actually a means of communication versus a gift. And I think people, even in my company, were still learning and trying to figure that out. But that was really interesting because the the fan side network effect that we saw, I would buy a Cameo for Amber. Amber would tweet it out to her Twitter. And then there's a Cameo watermark. So suddenly those people would watch the video. They would interact with it. They'd share it. But more importantly, every Cameo became a commercial for the next one. And that was a big reason we didn't have to spend any money on marketing for years. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. Just thinking about the structure of it, it's it, yeah, as a, as a cyborg anthropologist, it's like, you know, celebrities are kind of cyborgs because you already have camera and gear and makeup. And suddenly you can have people connecting directly with a fan without all of that extra. It, it's, it's this really special connective um, feeling. I think like the, the first time I saw a cameo, I don't know who it was with, but I remember saying, okay, this is an awesome model where you get rid of all of that press release and that formality and, and you get something that's a little bit between like Instagram story and a Snapchat, yet it's directed at somebody personal that you can see them as a real person for the, for the first time um, and really delight somebody. This, this was just so nice. I was like, somebody finally figured it out. Like you cut through everything and you finally get to, wow, that's what their kitchen looks like. Oh, they, oh, that's, that's so nice, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So you started to get notoriety at a relatively young age. How was that for you? How, how old were you when this started to take off? What, what, how did that feel? Uh, well, I was, I guess I was young, like relatively young. I think it was 28 or 29 when I started Cameo, about to turn 33. Um, so, you know, from that, that case, I, I kind of, to be honest, I look back at, at, you know, like the Forbes 30 under 30 list and some of these founders that are doing amazing things that are 19 years old or 23. In fact, uh, the first engineer to ever leave Cameo is a 23-year-old U of I grad named Matt Rastovic, and he just made the Forbes 30 under 30 list as a 23-year-old, right? So I see things like that, and I'm so jealous because, you know, for all that time I spent trading, I spent five years there. Maybe after a year, a year and a half, I learned everything I wanted, and I wish I could go back and have, and have earned uh, some of that notoriety or, or, or started, like, my entrepreneurial journey a little earlier. That's, frankly, the only regret I have. That's awesome. Yeah. For um, for people starting out, what what advice do you have for them? Like, 
if if you know if the world is like against them or they have something new or every time they read the paper it's do a social network or something and they're like just kind of following this thing yeah you can't follow i think um there's a there's a entrepreneur in chicago um named jay and he founded uh field glass which was one of the big exits in chicago he sold it for a billion dollars sap and i remember he was speaking at the chicago ventures ceo summit probably three years ago and he introduced me to this concept and the other CEOs called Ikigai. And it's a Japanese framework. And uh, Ikigai, imagine for all of you watching, you know, a Venn diagram, but instead of two circles, there's four. And essentially, you know, his, his logic was you cannot like actually be a world-class entrepreneur unless you're doing something that's in the middle of your Ikigai. And the four circles, the four circles of the Venn diagram of this Ikigai is what do you love to do? What are you great at? What does the world need? And what can you ultimately get paid for. And in me, I, I think back to my time at LinkedIn, my time uh, trading. While I was trading, you know, I was in the pen, I was running a sports book, I was trading and I was I was producing movies and television shows on the side. So like sports and entertainment were the things that I was doing for free while I was getting paid. So it made sense that if I could ever find a way to like work in sports or work in entertainment. And look, if I'd grown up in another company, uh, maybe if I'd moved to LA, maybe I would have been like another Chicago boy, like. Ari Emanuel and ended up, you know, being in Hollywood and doing that thing. But, you know, I was in Chicago and there wasn't an obvious way to really get involved with the entertainment industry. And, you know, I'm a natural connector. As I mentioned, my nickname has been the mayor forever. Just bringing people together is what I love to do. And, you know, it just for me, this business was the one I had to start. And when I had the idea, it took me about three months to actually make the plunge and, and leave LinkedIn and, and do this. And I'll never forget, it was New Year's Day 27, uh, coming into 2017, and a coworker of mine at LinkedIn named Will Hearn and I were sitting in the hot tub. And at the time, all of my coworkers at LinkedIn that sat around me, everybody was pumped. Like we were kind of working on this business on the side while, while like, you know, getting our free lunch and, you know, all the perks of working a big tech company. And one guy wanted to run sales and one of the girls wanted to run marketing. And we were going to try to build this billion dollar business, like while working at LinkedIn and, and, and running sales. And I remember Will Hearn coming to me. He's like, Steven, you got to stop messing around. But like if somebody else builds this business and becomes a billionaire, could you live with yourself? And nobody had ever asked me that question, but the answer was so obviously no that I, I put my next play letter into LinkedIn and I never went back. Like literally after that Nicaragua trip, I came right home, I went right to 1871, I never went back to work. And I, I think that's the same thing. Entrepreneurship's too hard unless you're actually trying to work on something that isn't your key guy and that you literally could not stand to live if somebody else won in that space, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed, which is why it's so funny. I see a lot of people like, why are you doing startup? Oh, because it's cool. It's like, wait, you know, a startup's neat. You get to choose which hundred hours of the week you get to work. It's real, real wonderful. You know, there's a lot of choice. But I remember um, I was like interviewing with this person. I really wanted to work at this company back in 2008. And the guy sat down with me and he said, you know what? I could hire you right now, but I'm not going to hire you. Isn't there something in the back of your head that you just can't stop thinking about? And I was like, and of course the thing just popped in my head exactly like this impossible dream that I was going to do like the next, the future of geolocation or something like that. And I didn't tell him that. He was just like, yeah, you know, you just think about it. And if you don't have any of that, you can call me back, but I'm probably not going to hire you because I know there's something, you know, and I was like, oh, I was so mad. I said, look, I, I've done everything. I, you know, and, and then, you know, that stuck. And I had to go off and do the thing. And I spent the next four years, you know, really working on the thing and then selling the thing. 
I was like, oh, I'm so mad because all I wanted to do was just be a normal human. You know, I wanted the regular job and the life and the thing and the, you know, and it was like, no, no, you have to go do this other thing because, and I don't know where people get this thing, you know, but when I talk with somebody who, who's just like, it's, it's super fun and cool. It's like, no, 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 find that one little weird thing that maybe when you see at the end of some film, you remember that thing inside yourself that you really needed to do. And like, even though it sounds crazy, especially if it sounds crazy, follow it. You don't know where it's going to take you, but it'll probably take you somewhere pretty epic. And if you don't, then at least you got it out of your system. And when yeah. you're 50, you're not like, oh, I didn't do the thing. Or you don't see it, see somebody else doing it and go crazy. Um, yeah, that's it's super I, I kind of agree with that more in Amber. A framework that was given to me, too, was a bit, I'm a sports guy, so baseball analogy really worked. And I remember when I was getting ready to start um, Cameo, and they were talking about, if you create a company that works in consumer, like it's it's just it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Like cracking consumer is it's so hard. Like B2B, you can find a business problem, you can iterate. It's not that it's easier, but like to win in consumer, it's it's unbelievably hard. And I remember talking to this consumer founder, a very iconic consumer founder, who basically described it like this. He's like, founding a consumer internet company that pops off is like it's like playing baseball, but where the grand slam can be worth infinity. Right. And that was just something like I've, I've really thought about it. And, and even through the last couple of years as I've watched, like how my personal network has opened up, how, you know, people that I idolized are like in one cool moment. I took my dad to Super Bowl this year. Uh, my parents uh, in Miami it was his 70th birthday. And, you know, having people like Brett Favre and Isaiah Thomas, like, uh, you know, Jerome Bettis like, coming up to my dad. And I remember Isaiah Thomas coming up to my dad and saying, your son's the smartest person here because we all work for him. Right. And. And like my, it was just such an amazing moment to watch, um, you know, how, how happy my dad, like people that he idolized that are coming on and they're part of the platform. Or last week when my mom's all-time favorite artist, Kenny G and I were having dinner and he FaceTimed my mom and like, she just lost her shit. And, and that's what's so fun about, you know, this business. Totally, totally. Um, I think about the, the first thing that really inspired me was I was reading this this Y Combinator letter from Paul Graham and all it said was like how to start a startup. And I said, you can compress, you know, 40 years of working into a couple years and then you can get the payout. And I was like, what? It was like compressing space and time. And I was like, what kind of weird physics magic is this? And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's, it's physics magic. Like this is, this is, there are very few alternatives that we're given in this society to be able to go off and do our own thing. And this is one of the most, weird challenging up and down transformative thing somebody can do if they've got the the ikigai right i think so oh, and, it's, awesome. and it's crazy i remember after you know kleiner letter series b round and suddenly the company was worth 300 million dollars and i remember dividing the amount of days that i'd been thinking about cameo by the post money valuation of the company and, and coming up with like every day was worth two hundred eighty thousand dollars of value creation out of nowhere it's like it's just insane and um and you know my girlfriend will give me shit because a couple of years so i'd given that math to her one time and i told her like look babe this is how much i love you that you know i'm, I'm putting all this time like th these are expensive hours and uh and she gives me shit about that a lot but you know again it's it's fun and games but like that's that's actually what's happening totally totally so you have made this decision to kind of you know you're you're a really fast growing startup, but you are you didn't sign a lease in Fulton Market. You're kind of living as a homeless company. How are you managing not having a home 
And, and what does, how does this uh, decision play out for you? Yeah, that was crazy. For those of you in Chicago, our headquarters was 400 North Aberdeen through Aberdeen and May, right in Fulton Market. At our Christmas party this year, my landlord came up to me and said, hey, Stephen, I got some news. I just got an offer for you know X amount of million dollars to buy the building. I need you out by April 1st. And for any of you that are in commercial real estate, you know how long it takes to move a 100-person company, you know, especially a tech company with build-outs and all these things. So we were scrambling. And I was negotiating with the the, the uh, real estate company that was buying that property. They had another building coming up and, um, and you know, they were going to roll out all the bells and whistles. And if we signed that lease, this 10-year lease, then we were actually going to, they wouldn't knock our building down right away. So they had me like, you know, kind of cornered against the wall. And my spider sense was just saying, hey, this COVID thing feels weird. Like, let's just see what happens. And I remember on, it was on the 11th of September, I had, or the 11th of March, I had a go, no, go meeting. And I told the developer that we were punting and we weren't ready to sign. And I understood if they had to knock the building out, but we were going to be prepared to just have all of our employees work from home, which again was like, Cameo is like a very office-centric culture. Like if any of you guys have been there, it's a very magical place. And this is like a very big decision. The next day, the that night, the MBA shut down. The next day, the markets crashed. Uh, I actually had all my employees working from home the day before that. We were the first company in Chicago to shut down. And we've never been back. So unburdened from real estate, we found that this model really worked for us. One of the tough things about building a tech company in a Portland or in a Chicago is that while there's a lot of great early stage talent, there's just not that many people that have built and scaled businesses like that. And especially in the Chicago ecosystem, it's very incestuous. All the top CEOs invest in you know, the next generation of companies. So it would have been very hard for me to poach a top executive from Spot Hero or Raise.com or Grubhub because these guys were, you know, the CEOs were friends and mentors of mine. So when you're looking at companies that scale, you often have to try to go find people from the Valley, from New York, from LA, and, and they have Midwest roots and they want to come back. So thinking about who's the best head of product, you know, whose wife is from Naperville, like that's a really hard thing to do. So by the now that Cameo is fully distributed, we're able to hire the best people in the world no matter where they are. I just hired in the last month, our, uh, C, our CTO is in Los Angeles, our COO is in the Valley, our CFO is in New York City, our uh, you know new chief people officer, as you mentioned, Mel Steinbeck, who's at McDonald's, very involved with the club here, is in Chicago, right? My executives are everywhere. We run the business like this, we're on Zoom, and you know we're gonna go for it. We're gonna try to build the best culture in the world of a you know fully distributed company and you know it's given our employees a lot of freedom some are staying in chicago some are leaving um but at the end of the day like you know chicago's ancestral home it's always important to us but if you have internet you can work for cameo no matter where you are that's awesome that's that's so great to hear and it's and it's it's funny because i think anytime you see a lot of resistance to a thing by like traditional companies and then you know and then you see this new weird thing you often see it like early on right it's like oh those work from home and what do you mean like 37 signals like how do you work this way then it's like look at how much less overhead you have where somebody can you know walk their dog because their dog is there or hang out with their kid because their kid is next to them versus being like okay we're going to artificially make you sit here from 9 a.m to 5 p.m we don't get your extra time because you're commuting and you're stressed you got to leave during lunch if you've got a dog uh, if you got a kid, you got to miss the thing. And then, you know, it's just like, and, or doc, and then doctor's appointment, you know, you're gone for yeah, two days, always. right? So yeah, yeah. And that's, 
it, it's it's unbelievable. In fact, like we signed our CTO uh, last night um, that we're really excited about, and you know he was mentioning to me like, hey, I'd like a March first start date because I'm moving my family from Los Angeles to Tampa, Florida. I'm like, we're a distributed company. You don't need to go in the office. Like, like you're starting January first. Like, I don't like the move isn't that big of a deal. Like, nobody cares. Just turn your phone on, and you know, and if you need a couple like extra hours that day, just block it off and don't schedule any meetings. Totally, totally. It's it's so crazy, and then we have all of these magical, you know, text message and Slack type systems and whatever. Where it's like, I just I just remember working in office for a while, and it was like, how much extra time am I spending just like talking with somebody like on the way to the water cooler and then it's like that's where we get all of our work done it's like wait but i i can have that i can have my own water cooler on on my phone you know and anyway uh that's so Andrew, cool I'll tell you one other thing so when i was talking to other founders who had moved their tech companies distributed one in particular told me like three things and he goes there's three things you're going to learn when your company goes fully distributed Number one, you're gonna realize you have twice as many people as you need. Because what's very what's very normal for startups is, you know, you raise a new round of funding, you move into an office, and suddenly you go from 4,000 square feet to 40,000 square feet, and there's all these positive desks, and managers get in their head like, I need to fill these desks, I need to do it. And then suddenly when you're when you're distributed, people are like, it's kind of a pain in the ass to manage people that aren't performing. I don't need to empire build, I don't need to show how many things. And like, you know, fortunately we were pretty lean and mean, but that, I think that was true. Secondly, he said, you're gonna realize that your employees are way more efficient. You know, most people probably spend in, in the eight hour workday, you know, they, they get to work, they talk to their colleagues, you know, after about an hour checking emails, they're gonna go walk to Starbucks, they're gonna come back, uh, they'll work for another half hour, they're gonna go to lunch, spend an hour there, come back, go play ping pong, do all that stuff. He's like, you're gonna find that most of your employees are probably working for about two hours a day, but now that they're distributed and they can do it on their own, if you're a night person and you don't wanna work till noon, but you wanna jam all night, great. We've seen our engineers are checking in more code. You know, We've seen our talent people are reaching out to more people. And then lastly, they're like, all your biases and all office politics are going, your biases around location and office politics are just gonna disappear on Zoom. And it's so true, like we had incredible people. We have employees in Melbourne, Australia. We have people in London, we have people in Barbados, we have people, you know, in Idaho and Louisiana, like all over the place. And it, I don't have to see you anymore. If you do a great job, like, and we're just doing this, it doesn't matter if you're in Chicago. It doesn't matter if I see you in the water cooler. I'm not biased by like who I see and coming from trading, coming from LinkedIn, which were very like, you know, location-based, office-based things. It totally opened my eyes up and, and I love it. I'd never go back. That's awesome. I mean, when we when we kind of we hired our office as if it were an employee, and then we had six people in an office that was made for 30 people. And and it, I remember people coming from the press being like, "Your office is empty," and we're like, "Yeah, isn't it fun? We can run all over the place. We can put drones in here. We can do whatever we want." And they said, "Why aren't you hiring more?" And I said, "We don't need more people." I read a Xerox research article that a user experience person and developer can outperform a company of 20 people, and all our competitors have teams of 20 people, and they're getting bogged down. If we were to raise a lot of money and expand artificially, we would have to fire all of those people. And I'd rather just hire what we need. And man, we had a good time in the office. And then we were bought it's when so, we were six it's people. Never, it's so true. And and even for a company like us, right? We've gone from, you know, this company last year we had a year where we went from 15 to 150 people in a year, right? And now we're about 175 employees. And today we're getting ready to launch our next product and it's you know set for launch 
in uh, you know the, the launch date was the 18th of January. The, the product has been built since early November, but we decided we didn't want to like ship it in the middle of holiday, which is our busy season. And like because I didn't want to resource it, you know, all the PMMs like they came with this big launch plan, wanting to push it back to March 8th, 8th or something like that. I'm like, no, we're shipping this thing today. Like we can't lose our edge, we can't lose our scrappiness because you know the, the more people you hire, like people need to figure out work to do. And and sometimes you hire people and it's just like I don't even know what they do. Yeah, that that is a sad truth, right? And then if you get too many of that, they they kind of surround you, and you're like, oh, this is the new norm. That like I'm big. Well, I need to operate like this. I I remember walking into meetings like early on, and I was like, why are we in this meeting? And they're like, well, because da da da. And I was like, are you gonna make the decision now? And they're like, oh no, we'll make it on Monday. And I was like, are we Cisco? Excuse me. Like we're a startup. Like we're we're six people. So write down what we're gonna do, and you're gonna. And I like locked the door. I was like, you're gonna sit in this room till you're done. And you yeah. better have a good reason for making meetings. And they're like, you're so mean. And I was like, you, you're you working here to not be at a big company. Let's not right. act like a big company until we absolutely. I'm like, this feels like big company problems, right? Yeah. We're, like, we're, we're one of the fastest growing consumer internet companies in the world. Like, we're not operating like this. Yes, yes. And the minute you do, it's like, ah, you know, and it's so hard to, like, hold that when everybody, yeah. That's awesome. A really nuanced question is like, how do you deal with some of the, let's say, PR nightmares that a celebrity might have? Have you had any close calls? How do you mitigate that? What's your strategy? Yeah, I, we have them all the time, right? We're we're in a business where just the people that can be on Cameo can be, you know, the the darling of America one day, and then you know, national uh, nightmare the next. A good example. The most booked person on Cameo during the first half of this year was Jerry Harris from the Netflix show Cheer. And, you know, he's a Chicago guy. And suddenly, you know, two months ago, he got arrested by the FBI for child pornography charges. And it's like, you know, whoa, you know, and 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 then on the flip side, like, uh, you know, we have people like Rod Blagojevich or Chris Christie, you know, that have gotten pranked by, you know, Democrats or they're pumping up or you've got like someone in Donald Trump's campaign or cabinet, like pumping up Joe Biden, you know, tricking him into saying Joe Biden. Like, so one of the things that we realized, and, and we had a really big uh, PR scandal about two years, right around this time, two years ago, and Brett Favre, who is at the time the most iconic person on Cameo, ended up getting tricked into saying like a, a dog whistling, like anti-Semitic message. And it went hyper viral. And at the time, like I felt like this could be an existential moment for the business. And you know, if Brett Favre didn't feel safe, if other talent didn't feel safe, like Cameo was donezo. And I remember like, you know, that night I, it was it was snowstorm. I drove up to Wisconsin where he was doing an autograph signing. You know, we we did everything we could to get the PR there and and it turned out that like he got tricked and any reasonable person would have got tricked. And I remember going up to Brett and Brett's like, Steven, it's not the best day I've ever had. It's not the worst day I've ever had. I love the moments that I'm creating with my fans. And like, sometimes shit's going to happen, right? And and that's one of the things, like, as we're changing the world, I remember Jeff Wiener, who the CEO of LinkedIn was one of my early investors. And he called me at the time and he's like, Steven, like, I know this feels brutal right now. And it feels like the whole world's coming onto you, but you've changed the world. Never, never before Cameo has there ever been a way to like literally put words in people's mouths before? And like the implications of this are gonna be massive. Like 
there are going to be many things like this happen, but like you just always need to make sure that Cameo is a platform for good. And and we've taken moderation really seriously. You know, I think that the paywall, the fact that like people have to pay to even request and the talent can say yes or no, it filters out so much of the garbage you'd see on a Reddit or you'd see on a Twitter or you'd see on an Instagram, but it's not going to be a hundred percent. And basically we have to be dedicated to this platform needs to exist and it needs to say, safe so the magical moments can be um, can be created because if people lose faith in it, a lot of, a lot of magic, a lot of smiles, a lot of laughs, a lot of cries aren't gonna happen. <laughs> totally, totally. It's like now it's a real ecosystem and just like a person doesn't die from a common cold, like, you know, there's gonna be these things, but knowing them and anticipating them, that's great. Is there anyone exciting coming on board for the holiday season? Yeah, we have a there's a there's a big pipeline. The teams work their butts off uh, this year, teeing some up. So the starting next week, it's our 12 days of cameo uh, that we do every year, and we're launching a lot of exciting people. Um, the other thing we're launching that's going to be a lot of fun. I believe it's on uh, December 9th, 7th or the 9th. Get on our email list if you're not there. But we're launching. We're we're putting in beta our new product, Cameo Calls which is a virtual meet and greet product. And you'll be able to do that with Santa Claus. That's brilliant. You're opening to this B2B market, right? So, and you're trying to partner with brands. How are you, how are you doing that? How are you making that transition or that, that secondary uh, business model? And, and so just, just like other things that have product market fit, our customers started telling us what they wanted. So what we started seeing were, uh, businesses were coming to book cameos from people like Brett Favre, and they were hoping that Brett could give a shout out for the Chevrolet dealership in, you know, Waukesha, Wisconsin's Veterans Day sale. And we saw that 5% of our cameos were declined by talent. And most of them weren't because they were, it was Bears fans trying to get him to say that the Packers sucked. Like that wasn't it. With small businesses looking for like a, an endorsement and almost like the modern day pitch man, right? And uh, in the Instagram age and the TikTok age, people are looking for video assets to put out there to engage with their crowd. And we talked to Brett and Brett's like, this is cool, I would do it. I just need to make more money for it. So we've now create, created a new B2B SKU and that's the fastest growing segment of our business right now where you know, for a little bit more money, a business could come in and get a video asset that they could use to put on Facebook, put on Instagram, put on their website and, and market out to their fans. And we think that's gonna be a really big business for us. I'm curious how you may recommend that small businesses can leverage your platform for a tasteful marketing campaign. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, we have a new team uh, called Cameo for Business, um, you know, and I think it's C4B at Cameo.com. Um, but anyways, like we're, you know, we want to talk to you guys. We want to hear what would make a campaign really tasteful. Uh, we're, we're just iterating. This is something we'll be focused on a lot in 2021, but it's, it's pretty much day, day one for this. That's awesome. Um, how do you decide how much each celebrity uh, charges? And is there an issue with some of them making more than others? So we've always believed that talent should set their own price because if they price themselves and we don't, then they can never tell us that this isn't worth, you know, that a cameo video isn't worth their time. So the Jedi mind trick I used early was to take uh, an equation that we called earnings per minute. And the math on this, I remember Andre Drummond from the Detroit Pistons was the first max salary NBA player to join Cameo. He's making 25 million a year. He told me that he'd gotten paid $40,000 to go to a bar mitzvah, you know, for some Pistons fan uh, earlier that year. So he thought he'd need to be $10,000 to be on Cameo. And I told him, Andre, here's the math. Take 25 million, your total salary, 
divide by 2,000 hours in a work year, 50, 40 hour weeks, divide that amount by 60, and you actually make $208 per minute. So if your cameos are 15 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute, and you're charging 100 bucks or 150 bucks or 200 bucks, you actually could make more money per minute on Cameo than you could playing in the NBA. And frankly, for that mom that wants to take her son to come see you play, like it might be cheaper for her to get you to talk to him and wish him happy birthday than for her to take him to the game to, to have him do it. And you know, once we got people bought into anchoring themselves lower, because again, we're market makers, we had no idea what these should trade for. There's no real comp to this. Today, it's like Zillow. People come on and they look for relative value. For the Chicago Bears fans in the audience, Lance Briggs is 55 bucks and Brian Urlacher is 540 bucks. I love Brian Urlacher. I love Lance Briggs. You've got to really love Brian Urlacher to pay 10x more for him than you would get from Lance Briggs, right? But so people are shopping relative value, but if there's someone you really want, you're going to pull the trigger on the higher price person. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so we talked about kind of that first tweet and that first reaction video, but um, how did you get, like, who was your first big name and, and how did you get them? The first really, so there's two answers to that. The one that really like got us traction for the first time was actually uh, a YouTuber named Cody Co. And Cody was actually roommates with my co-founder, Devin. And at the time we were just focused on athletes and, and Cody was a very big Vine star and YouTuber. And Devin goes, hey, Steven, I think Cody and people like Cody might do well on this platform. And like the second <laughs> Cody got on, we basically found product market fit. And that was kind of like the beginning of the meteor of, of the rise that we've seen. As far as like big traditional bold face name, it was definitely Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman joined the platform. And then like a day later, the Chicago Tribune came up with an article and it was like, for 200 bucks, you could get Dennis Rodman to talk to you. And then that started like basically what's been like a three year straight PR onslaught. Uh, but Dennis Rodman was a really important part of the cameo story. And so is the Chicago Tribune being the first uh, paper to really cover us and tell our story. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you would like us to know uh, about what you're working on? Or maybe like a, a silly question, like who has the most quantity of cameos or something like that? Any well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, this year we're gonna have two people that make a million dollars on cameo, uh, which is really exciting. Um, you know, we have uh, the, the people who are at the top of the list, people always like to ask who's the most requested that we don't have. It's actually a guy named David Dobrik. He's a vlogger. Most of you guys in the audience probably have no idea who he is, but your kids I'm sure like love him. He's kind of like, the Jimmy Fallon of Gen Z, um, you know, the most expensive person on Cameo is Caitlyn Jenner. Um, you know, Floyd Mayweather was also there and Floyd Mayweather will be making a, a Cameo. It's Black Santa coming up in the next couple of weeks. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you know, if you've got a, everybody's got holidays coming up, uh, Cameo is the perfect gift to get to, to give to family members, especially with the lockdowns coming. You can't, you know, you can't see people. So, you know, if you haven't tried us out, Cameo.com, uh, you know, give us give us a shout and let me know what you think of it. Uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, sharing your story, inspiring people, both from consumer side, B2B. We talked about entrepreneurship and the importance of investing in and having failures and uh, believing yourself and not following an ikigai. We've got we got we got a lot of coverage here. So thanks again. Thank you, Amber. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. 
The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.